Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm Eric Quanstrom, CMO at Science. And I'm Harry Evans, Director of Craft and Strategy at Science. I think we might have the most enterprisey of enterprise sales development episodes here for you today, Harry. We had the chance, the opportunity, the blessing to talk with Rocky Voria. Rocky is actually currently the Vice President of Global Sales Development for IBM, You know, a little company that's been around for over 100 years, and she oversees over 350 SDRs there. What's also interesting about Rocky's background and bio is that not only has she spent the last few years at IBM, been a Forbes contributor, got her master's degree from Oxford, but came to IBM after almost seven years at Microsoft, where, you know, as as part of a claim to fame, she played a key role in building out their digital sales force, growing the team to 2,000 sellers and the global business unit to over $8 billion in under three years. (laughs) Just some minor little numbers for some minor little companies like IBM and Microsoft. Uh, Yeah, Rocky is a consummate professional, has seen everything on the enterprise space. And just there's nothing better than interviewing somebody who has seen it and done it and succeeded through it. So she had a great perspective, and I'm really excited to hear what she has to say. Yeah, that perspective is is kind of woven throughout the interview where we kind of walk through the journey with her and learn all the way along. In fact, some really fun things about what they're doing, especially at IBM, I won't tease it too much, that you wouldn't expect. That is frankly a little bit different than how other enterprise sales development companies are running their program. So listen to the episode so that we don't disappoint. Welcome back to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, everyone. Rocky, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, very happy to introduce you to our audience. Thanks so much for having me. So you've all heard Rocky's really impressive background, and we have so much to talk about today. I think the trickiest thing about setting up this podcast interview was deciding which topics to cover and, and which directions to take it. So let's start at the top. There's always a, a, a common place to start that helps our, our listeners understand the person that we're talking to a little bit more and introduce you. So you spent time before you are uh, where you are currently with Microsoft, and you made a ma- major transformation there. You made a major impact. Uh, I saw you played a key role in building, in your own words, a new digital sales force for Microsoft, growing the team to 2,000 sellers globally and the business to over $8 billion in under three years, which to those listening, uh, I'm pretty confident they'll be impressed by those numbers. So after Microsoft, you moved on to IBM, where you became the director and now the VP of Global Digital Sales Development. That's a heck of a background. And I think a great place to start for our listeners is, what have you seen in such enterprise enterprise organizations? What has that experience been like going through the the real beasts in the industry? And what do you think has been different for you than others that have grown up in, in other spaces? Yes. Well, thanks again for having me. I mean, I think I've been really fortunate to work at two um, incredible enterprise tech companies, Microsoft and IBM, for the past 10 years or so. And I kind of grew up in enterprise tech, frankly. I mean, a lot of people start in the startup world or nonprofit or whatever it might be. I have really only had experiences in enterprise technology. So there's a lot of similarities between Microsoft and IBM, but there are also a lot of differences. I remember when I made the pivot 
Um, I kind of thought, well, I'm just trading one big tech company for another, but you would be surprised. I mean, there's a lot of differences despite being in the same industry, despite being the same kind of size, the same types of customers that we're going after. Um, and so I think it's just been a great experience to get some of that corporate experience. Um, you know, corporate's interesting because, I mean, there's so much that you can learn in a startup because there's so much agility and there's the ability to make decisions in a swift and fast um, manner. But I think what you get in a corporation is you really learn how to deal with efficiency and scale and process and structures and tools in a way that you don't. And I've been really fortunate because, as you just described in my background at Microsoft, I had a chance to work within a big corporation, but kind of in a startup environment. And that was great. It was great to kind of be part of a team that was growing, that was brand new. I was actually the fourth employee in that organization. And as you mentioned, wow. we hired about 2000 digital sellers in those three years. So really massive growth. But I think, you know, to anyone listening out there, it's a, it was a good reminder to me that, that you can actually have startup experiences within corporations. You can go to some of those incubation teams um, versus having to go to a startup. But I think both offer really great experiences. And I've been really fortunate to have grown up in the, the world that I have over the past several years. That's wonderful. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that you learned co combining inside sales with incubation. Well, I think, you know, inside sales wasn't new to Microsoft, um, but the way that they did it was very different. So previously, Microsoft had about 15 different geographies. And underneath each geo was a different leader who was running their own inside sales motions. And a lot of it was heavily outsourced. We had hundreds of different contracts with different tele-agencies or vendors around the world. And on the one hand, it was nice because that allowed the teams to be able to sort of customize what they needed for, for their given geography and business unit. On the other hand, as you can imagine, there was really no level of global consistency or standardization, which makes it really hard to scale a business. And so, Several years ago, that's why Microsoft decided to invest in standing up this centralized inside sales organization where they hired a leader from the outside. That was the person who was my boss. And basically they said, um, you know, let's let's stand up a centralized organization so that you can have globally consistent tools, playbooks, trainings, compensation models, role structures, all of that. Um, so that was a really great learning for me because I, I got to help build a lot of the foundational elements of what it takes to build and scale a high-performing sales team and, and got to help with everything from hiring our first wave of sellers to helping to build out what some of those things actually looked like. And there were a lot of, of learnings, a lot of areas that we had to pivot along the way. And I think it was just um, a great experience, I guess, to be able to see what that takes. And and I guess, you know, when you're backed by a a big corporation, the stakes are, are not as high in that if the business fails, I guess, I mean, it's not like you're, you're going to be out of a job, but I, I think there's just so much beauty in kind of being in an incubation team within a corporation for that very reason. You know, I'm going to ask you a pretty cheesy standard follow-up here, which is for all of the listeners who are going through the exact same process right now. If there's one thing you could tell yourself in, in building something of that scale, uh, a lesson that you've learned since, what would that be? Is there anything that you you feel like you could have done differently, better, that just you wouldn't have been able to see around that corner until you'd already done it? I think I would say still take just as high risks. Like even though you're in a corporation 
within a, a startup within a corporation, the risk may be lower, but I think the expectations are just as high. And like I said, I think the most obvious benefit was that there was less risk. When a Fortune 500 company invests in an incubation product or project, they've likely completed a significant amount of analysis on the likelihood of success and the expected ROI. So I knew when I had gone to this team that the company had done such a large body of work that passed through multiple layers of approval before investing in this approach. Um, so I knew it was kind of a long-term sustainable bet, but I think just sort of still taking big swings and looking for indicators like these in order to gauge how dedicated the company is to any given project is really important. But like I said, lower risk doesn't mean lower expectations. So I think people assume that the stakes aren't as high when you're backed by a corporate entity, but sometimes they're actually higher because of internal political pressures and ROI expectations. So even though there's not a venture capitalist breathing down your neck, there are definitely stakeholders expecting results. Well, and, and that's the province of sales, isn't it? <laughs> the curse that we all bear, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. So tell us, um, upon making the transition from Microsoft to IBM, and then you'd started as the director of uh, IBM Global Digital Sales Development and, and were recently promoted, if we have this right. Yes. Um, Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. Nicely done. Um, the, the thing that's really interesting to me is, is calling it digital sales development. How does IBM define on that? And, and give us some flavor for um, the word digital and its inclusion. Yeah, so a little bit about just my role in the team, and then I'll answer your question about digital and the title. I think... Um, you know, I, I've been at IBM for about two and a half years now. What attracted me to making this move was, I guess, having helped build a digital sales team at Microsoft. This was a chance for me to come over and inherit one that already existed and really figure out how you take it to the next level um, and, and really think about just sort of optimization, modernization, simplification, automation, all of those things. So it was a chance for me to kind of build a new muscle. So. Um, within our digital sales development function, we have about 350 reps around the world who are responsible for the lead qualification, the progression, and also closure of certain deals. So we sell a large portion of the IBM portfolio across cloud and services and storage and all of those types of things. So, um, so it's a really broad role. The reason why we use the word digital um, and it's a great question because a lot of companies use it differently, frankly, um, but typically Nowadays, you're seeing a lot of inside sales teams being called digital sales. In the past, you might have heard the word telesales, for example. My personal viewpoint is that's kind of the old school view um, of, of the term. And I frankly even think inside sales is a little bit old school. Um, what I like about the term digital sales, um, and just to clarify, I mean, we, we use that as kind of the equivalent of inside. So we have our digital sales teams and we have our field sales teams. Some other companies actually refer to digital sales as, as people who are going through digital methods in that you're not actually meeting with a seller. You're actually purchasing directly in a digital fashion. That's not what I mean here at IBM. But I would say that the reason we like the word digital is because we think um, inside sales has that connotation. Um, and the reality is nowadays, I think that you know, digital sales has become a way for corporations to address customers' needs in a much more personalized way. 
So there's so many investments in machine learning and AI capabilities that are helping us to understand where our customers at in their buying journey. And that gives us the opportunity to tailor our offerings and engagement. So I think we're, we're already starting to see a lot of companies shift to using the term digital sales versus inside or telesales or even virtual sales. But that's a little bit of the background on why we use the word digital. I think it's just kind of the the way to showcase to our customers and also to talent that we're trying to recruit in the industry that gone are the days where you're sitting around kind of cold calling on a list with no in background and information. You really have a lot of data and insights at your fingertips that makes it easy to connect with customers with the right touch at the right time with the right insights. And is that one of the biggest projects that you've really worked on is the, the data side, the providing the information through technology to your team or has the primary focus been more about getting the right people on board? When you're taking an endeavor of a size like this, where do you start and what do you prioritize? Well, at IBM, it's been a variety of different things, I'd say. You know, what I love the most about the sales development function is that I I think that um, it's the first line of contact that a customer typically has with your company. So my team's catching the inbound responses that are coming in through the digital channels. They're doing outbound prospecting to white space customers. And because of that, we're really the custodian of the IBM experience. We get to shape whether or not a customer chooses IBM now or in the future versus another solution. And I think with that comes a significant amount of responsibility to ensure that you, you have some of those insights. So in terms of some of the things that have been the biggest focus, I would say a lot of it has also been kind of around global consistency and standardization. Everything from making sure we have the right activities, the right roles, the right KPIs, the right compensation model. So, you know, even though I kind of inherited a team that already existed, I've spent a lot of time kind of borrowing from my Microsoft experience to drive a similar level of transformation here. And since being at IBM, we have made a lot of changes. We changed the roles within the team, as I mentioned. We changed the way we pay them. We changed the measurements that they're gold against. We've introduced new tech stacks and technologies. We've shortened our SLAs. We've improved our NPS scores. So I would say that it hasn't been one specific thing, but rather all of the things that I had just mentioned. And it's kind of about figuring out how you tackle each of those and in what order you need to do so. I'd say that when I first got here, it was really around some of the more foundational things that I just described. Now that I've been here for about two and a half years, we really have a chance for us to think about some of the more innovative things like introducing better scoring al algorithms and machine learning and things like that to actually take this team to the next level and equip them with more insights than they've had in the past. That's really cool. One of the things you mentioned just a second ago was was really kind of a personalized outreach. And I'm guessing that you're somewhat of a, a, a fan largely because I've also read articles that you've written about, you know, relevant references and personalization as part of the prospecting process. Talk to me a little bit more about how you've integrated personalization at IBM. For sure. I mean, I think there have been a lot of strides made in the past several years with the rise of just digital transformation. And I think what we're seeing in the industry is that customers want us to meet them on their terms. They want us to make it personal and to keep making it better. And I've been hearing a lot of consistent themes from customers. First, they, they want an experience that's channel agnostic and consistent. They want to self-serve. They want to know we can meet them where they are and engage them at the right time. 
But second, they want a much more personalized, streamlined experience that's designed to kind of meet their their needs. And we need to bring real value to the conversation to drive successful business outcomes for them and to build trust. So I think one of the things that we think a lot in order to engage customers at scale is how do we do that while still maintaining a personal relationship with them? And this is something that might not have been possible in previous years. And so we have so much um, data at our fingertips that's enabling deep analysis and rich customer conversations like never before. But at the same time, I mean, we have tens of thousands of clients. And so how do you make sure that you actually have that personal experience for everyone? So the way that we've done it, I'd say is, um, We've kind of built different nurture journeys depending on different types of things that are interesting to different people. So it's not as simple as saying, okay, you are in the automotive space, so this is the nurture journey that you go through. It's it's actually industry agnostic. It's more about the types of things that they've done in the past. And so what we're using our data for is to see what are those things? What are the types of events that you've gone to with IBM? What are the t- trials that you've signed up for? What are the webinars that you've gone to? Um, what are the links that you're clicking? All of those different things give us indicators of where a customer's at in their journey. And that allows us to put them into different nurture streams. And, and then we also put in a seller there to help actually validate some of those things. So you might be a seller and you have a lot of this insight into what a customer has done, but then you talk to them and actually needs have changed. And so you say, all right, maybe this isn't what you're looking for now. We're going to put you through a new journey and that might be automated or it might be with another seller. So those are some of the things that we've been doing. And we've also been able to leverage tools to be able to do it in a more automated fashion. For example, we've deployed SalesLoft to all of our sales development reps across the globe. Um, and that has been a great way for us to be able to uh, to use these nurture journeys and to build different cadences that are aligned with a more personal touch, I guess, but still being able to do it at scale versus having to do it one at a time, which has been great. You know, you asked, you, you mentioned earlier about white space outreach, and I, I assume you're using a multi-channel approach, especially if you're using SalesLoft. We use them as well. I actually spent a few years at Outreach myself as well. So the, that whole sales engagement platform space is near and dear to our hearts. The question there is, you talk about building a relationship with these people, but also doing this at scale. And so it it sounds, you mentioned the word nurture campaigns. It sounds like your approach being the group that you are and having the reputation that you do is to provide value and to regularly reach out to somebody, essentially nurture them until they are ready. Is that the approach a little less aggression, a little more just stay front of mind until the time comes, kind of orchestrate that serendipity? Or is there another tactic that you use as well? And do you just call all of the campaigns and cadences nurture? I think there's different types of nurture, I guess. It, it kind of varies. But for the most part, it's kind of what you described where, you know, we're, we're only reaching out to clients when we think that we have something that will benefit them. I think gone are the days where you sort of take the spray and pray approach. It's more of what can we do to get clients to want to come to us? And so putting out different events, putting out different content, seeing what sticks, making sure that they actually are engaging with the IBM assets. And once they do to to a certain extent, that's when we get an indicator that they're ready to talk to us. They've interacted with us in so many different digital methods. Um, We've nurtured them along the way. And it it might not be an, an outreach from a seller nurturing them. It might actually be an email inviting them to participate in a free trial or an offer to, to do something. So I think um, those are the ways that we're thinking about it. But what we're also thinking about is 
how do we even get people to our IBM marketplace? So, so we now have kind of this one, one place where customers can find products and services to fit their needs. They can search by technology, by business needs, by type. They can see the various customer offers. And there's a get started now button to make it super easy. There's information on financing options. And they can also engage with a live person on the marketplace. We have a live chat functionality on the web pages and they can click a button or email or call one of my team members. So that's a really practical way to enable buyers to buy on their own terms. And I think it's a combination of marketing and sales working together to support that client nurture journey and experience. So I'm really curious, do you have, because IBM is known for having such a wide swath of products and services that you support in all different sizes and flavors and packages. How are you dividing up kind of like these these different client journeys or would-be client journeys to suit? I think we do do tend to follow kind of the offering lens today. I mean, today we sell hardware, software, and services. And those are very, very different things or different motions. And so for the most part, I think we're trying to get a sense of what is most important to a client. But the reality is a lot of those things are now sort of overlapping and intertwining. So you might buy hardware, but then you'd want the services along with it to actually understand how do you deploy it and use it in an efficient manner. So a lot of the nurture journeys, I would say, are built around just sort of the the offering lens itself. But then once you sort of get a sense of that, tailoring it to the size of customer, the industry that they're in, the business need that they have. So I know I'm not not directly answering your question. And the only reason is because there is really no direct answer, frankly. There's so many different types of nurture journeys depending on what the offering is that it gets a little bit complex. But basically the main goal is to get something ready for a sales development rep to be able to reach out. So you know, hoping that all of those things over the course of time lead to a client reaching a certain threshold that gives us an indicator that they're ready to actually be talked to by an IBM seller. You mentioned a number of stages and you just said sales development rep. One of the questions that we like to ask in general is how each organization defines sales development. Where does that start? Where does that stop? Is it totally separate from sales? Is it totally separate from marketing? And maybe you can even help us settle the debate in the industry of is sales development marketing, sales, or something else entirely? <laughs> well, I think depending on who you ask, you're going to get a different, different answer. The reason why I love sales development is because I think it sits at the intersection between the two. It sits at the intersection between marketing and sales and also your ecosystem. So for us, actually, I mean, you, you, we previously had our sales development function actually physically reporting up through marketing up until this year when we made the change as part of our new go-to-market structure where we moved it underneath sales. Um, I believe that Our team is an extension of marketing in that we are the execution arm of the marketing strategy. We're investing in all these campaigns. We're trying to get customers to interact with us, but we're the people who are meant to actually action on those and deliver a great experience, ideally turn that into pipeline that eventually closes. So I I personally believe that although we are an extension of marketing, this is a sales function. And that's why we have the word sales in in the titles, in the organizational name, all of that. That's why we have our sellers actually on sales incentive plans because we want them to be accountable for actually generating pipeline that does close, as I just mentioned. And so 
they're, they're talking to clients, they're meeting with them, they're pitching and selling IBM solutions. My belief is that a sales development function should be paid as a sales team, even though they're the, they are the execution arm of the marketing strategy. So in terms of your question, though, about how far we take the deal, it honestly sort of depends. So for the most part, I mean, I would say the primary function of our sales development team is to generate pipeline. So we're doing all of the initial qualification. We want to make sure that we have the BANT criteria and the qualification, and then we do the handoff. And we pass through a variety of sources, either another digital seller or a field seller or a business partner. And it varies depending on what the offering is at IBM. It can get very complex, frankly. But... Overall, I would say that we we take it to, I don't know, maybe somewhere between 20 and 40% before the handoff. That being said, I will say that there are a number of offerings that we actually have our sales development reps close directly. So there are some offerings that they take it to 100%. And we're trying to expand that actually, because if you have sharp, talented reps who have the ability to close, why would we put that customer through this journey where they're getting passed to to people left and right? So I think that's the area that we're really trying to double down on and invest in our portfolio to make it easier to be able to close some of these more simple transactional things that we don't have to pass to another person. Would you say uh, uh, that your sales team appreciates that because they don't have to deal with some of the simpler transactional interactions or is there resistance from a sales team that says, well, we were going to close those deals? What, what kind of a reaction do you find when you make those kind of changes? I think the reaction has been positive because sometimes, honestly, a field seller or, or somebody else might not want some of the smaller deals, frankly. And I think that's one yeah. of the biggest challenges that we have as a sales development function. We are generating a significant amount of pipeline from a volume perspective. But the reality is we sometimes are a small deals engine. So we don't have the big whales that you might see in the enterprise space. And so when you're passing some of these leads, it, it can be hard, I guess, from a deal size perspective to compete with some of the other pipeline that's out there. And we want to make sure that every customer, regardless of deal size, gets a really great IBM experience from an actual seller. So if you're able to have a sales development team actually close it and, and provide that function, why not? Well, it's almost back to the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Turning SDRs into more full cycle type of, of reps. Are you using mainly pipeline as your number one kind of compensation metric then if you're judging on sales? So pipeline creation is definitely the primary responsibility of the team, but we do have a win revenue component of their compensation. Win revenue actually represents today 40% of how they're paid, which is it's higher than some some other companies. And it's actually higher than it was when I first got here. I think that unfortunately, unless you have that component, you don't always have the quality that you're looking for. I think it's Mm. really important to make sure that to have that level of accountability. And I know there can be many debates on, well, If your sales development team actually isn't the people who have the ability to close the deal, is it fair to have a win revenue component on their compensation? I think there's arguments for both sides, but my my personal view is that you have to have some win revenue component. Otherwise, there's really no point generating a lot of pipeline that doesn't eventually get progressed and closed. How do you handle the time element then? Because I imagine, you know, with 
especially on <laughs> big, heavy equipment or hardware side purchases and or huge consulting agreements that IBM gets into, you're, you're not talking about sales cycles measured in days, but rather <laughs> months, if not years. Right, for sure. I mean, the sales cycles can greatly vary. It can be closed same day. It could be six months, 12 months from now. So it really depends. Um, I, I think, you know, it's one of the things that you have to make sure happens in those instances is I could go back to the nurture piece that I had mentioned. So if you do have a longer sales cycle and you know this is a deal that's not going to close until next year or that the customer is just not ready, you have to make sure that you're either using sales loft or some sort of an automated marketing nurture process to make sure that you're keeping the customer engaged and that their business needs aren't evolving over time or as they evolve that we're evolving with it. But for the most part, I mean, yeah, the majority of our, our deals actually are not very short term. So we have to make sure that we have people who are on top of things and who are making sure that we're not losing some of those things in the pipeline to the competition. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you changed the way you were paying your reps in general as one of the major changes. Is this the main one that you made or, or what other kind of comp changes did you make in general? Yes, that was the main one. And we also have um, in the pipeline creation metric, a piece of it is volume and a piece of it is value. So count versus revenue. Um, so that was another change that we had made as well because we care about both. There, you know, We don't want people to just be hitting their pipeline creation metric by having a few deals that are large. We wanna make sure that this is a business that is kind of the customer acquisition tool for the company. So we do care about those really small deals as well. So those are the main things, but then we've also introduced other components that maybe aren't necessarily aligned with how they're paid, but that they're definitely gold against. So for example, SLAs, like we, we know obviously industry data suggests that the longer you take, the less likelihood that a deal actually closes. And, and oh, yeah. it happens even within minutes. I mean, and you've got to make sure that you're reaching out to a customer within 30 to 60 minutes in most instances. So SLAs is something that we've really, really focused on and we've, we've made a lot of progress on, but definitely have more work to do. NPS scores, which I had mentioned earlier as well, is something that's very important to us. It's an indicator of how we're, our actual outreaches are. And then also, as I mentioned, kind of how many deals we're closing ourselves. So even though the team's not getting paid on that component directly, because we have a win revenue component, that's sort of in unintentionally, I guess, leading to people wanting to close more deals themselves. And so I think there's a lot of elements that are kind of codependent on each other. And that's been a helpful way for us to make sure that people are aligned on those types of things. Is it asking too much about your secret sauce to ask what kind of volume you guys do on the sales development side? In other words, I know you're new using sales loft. Is it a certain amount of prospects that your team tries to put through for, for a day or week? Is it a certain amount of calls or emails? What kind of baseline metrics do you use to measure that? So actually, we don't really measure a lot of those um, traditional sales development metrics. And I think a lot of people are getting away from that. So we, we don't have a dials per day metric. We don't have a number of leads per week metric because I, I just think that's kind of an antiquated view of, of looking at things, honestly. And I know a lot of people would disagree with that. But I, my belief is that if you're setting your targets accurately, it doesn't matter if you call 30 people one day and 60 people another, as long as you're sort of doing all the things that you wanted to do. So we don't actually have some of those traditional metrics at IBM. That's fascinating. So what have you replaced as far as 
you know, 350 headcount is, is not a small number. How do you kind of like manage and or stay on top of the team without traditional metrics? Well, I think, I mean, part of it's making sure that you have really great managers across the globe. So even though we don't have some of those traditional metrics, we are definitely watching the pipeline very, very closely and making sure the team's doing what they need to be doing. So I think we have geography leaders underneath each geo is a whole set of managers aligned to different business units to different industries. And even though we don't have, you know, dials per day or some of the, those more traditional metrics, we do have a lot of guidance in all of our process documentation. So, for example, if you get a lead, we we believe that the sweet spot is that you do up to 12 touches within a 30-day period. If you're not able to get the BANT qualification after 10 to 12 touches within the first month, that's when we want you to close out the lead and we'll put it through an automated nurture function, for example. So so even though um, we're not looking at kind of dials per day, we do have a lot of those kind of metrics that the management team is making sure that they're looking at to ensure that pipeline is moving, that we're closing things out, that we're touching the new things, that we're working on our SLAs, all of that good stuff. That actually seems like kind of an alchemy, if you will, of, it, hey, if you're training your SDRs effectively and they know what all the plays could or should be, it's really mixing and matching of the nurture journey at that point for them to execute up, upon. Is that a fair way of, of rephrasing what you just said? Yes, I think so. <laughs> That's fantastic. Another thing that you said that really jumps out to me, mainly because I keep reading study after study on this element within the sales process is responsiveness is now becoming, if not the most important criteria to a deal. And and what's so amazing about it is how just facepalm obvious it is. You know, but building SLAs and building responsiveness is not easy, is it? Right. Easier said than done, for sure. And I think one of the challenges is we have so many different competing priorities. I mean, of course, you want to manage the inbound that's coming through. But at the same time, we, we actually don't have inbound versus outbound reps. And I think that's something that we probably want to look at and maybe pilot. Because when you have somebody who is only doing all of the things coming through on an IBM web page or is only doing live chat on an IBM web page, those people are the ones who need to be on top of things all the time. When you're doing a mix, you might come into your day and it's 9 a.m. and you had a lot of leads that dropped overnight or first thing in the morning, but you already have a whole morning of customer calls scheduled. The reality is you're probably not going to get to those inbound leads until the afternoon. And by that point, it's too late, according to the data. So I think, you know, we have to really think through that. We're not there yet today, but we've developed a few different strategies to make sure we're watching this really closely. I mean, fortunately, we... We have some pretty good tools now. We've recently migrated all of our Salesforce to Salesforce CRM. And so with that, we have a lot of analytics and insights to be able to see what's been action, what hasn't, where the time has lapsed. And we're having some of our managers actually reassign some of those leads if they don't get action within an hour or within the right time frame to somebody else who might be able to catch it faster. So a lot of different workarounds, but I think the ideal state is getting to a place where we are so seamless, we're so fast, we're reassigning in an automated fashion, but we're just not there today. You know, that makes me think of two questions tied into the 
you know, the world events that have been going on, the pandemic and everything else, have you found that SLAs are more difficult to stick to with people working remotely and with everything going on in the world right now? Or has the, the shift to using more technology even made that maybe easier? I have found that it, it has been harder, frankly, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, because I think when you're in an office, there's a little bit more accountability at times. Now, I think people have that Zoom fatigue. People have found different ways to still get their work done, but in a more flexible fashion. So one of the things we really struggled with at the beginning of the pandemic, for example, is we weren't doing a great job at our live chat SLA. So, you know, people were stepping away or they would do a call on their phone instead of at their computer, which they had traditionally done. And you would have a client on the other side who was just like waiting for an IM to come back from an IBM rep. That's a horrible, horrible experience. And so we had to, to really double down and, and take, say to people, you know, we're going to schedule two-hour time slots. And if you need to step away to go to the bathroom during your two-hour time slot, you need to make sure you're clicking a button so that it routes to somebody else. So a lot of those things are kind of hygiene related. But I would say that, that we did see some challenges, especially at the beginning of the pandemic in terms of the SLAs, because even though you don't have your commute, even though you're at home, I think people have found sort of different ways of working than when you're just sitting at your desk every single day. So I mentioned I had two pandemic-related questions. I'll shift into the second one now. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering that. Uh, first, I'm going to give a disclaimer. Whatever the response you hear from Rocky on this next question, please don't, everyone listening, do the exact same thing and reach out to her directly using this. That said, <laughs> working for both Microsoft and IBM, I'm assuming, especially in the roles you've been in, you probably get a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails, a lot of LinkedIn messages. I, I assume you get contacted a lot. And with everything that's changed in the pandemic, probably even more on the digital space, the amount of outbound that you're getting, the amount of tools that people are selling you. So as someone who sees this as much or more than anyone, what are you seeing the most, especially that makes you chuckle or that seems generic? And if someone actually has something valuable for not you specifically, but someone in a role like yours or in an organization like the ones that you've worked at, what are the ways that get your attention? What are the things that stand out from the from the noise? You know, for me personally, I think just the super simple emails that start with exactly what people are looking for. I think there's so many different creative things that have come about, which has been great. I mean, you have different videos or click this and then you'll you'll see a video from me that's personalized. I think those are really creative, but like for me, I think like I'm pretty much on the go on my phone a lot of the times. And so I just want something that I can click that's as seamless and easy to look at as possible. If it's something where I have to click one or more things to actually get to what you're looking for, you've, you've lost me. So that's kind of the most important thing to me. But I know it, it really varies. A lot of people would probably say, phone calls is actually better now because I don't I don't have as many meetings, I guess. But one of the things that we had noticed is that, especially during really heavy periods of lockdown, as we were reaching out to customers over the phone, we weren't getting as much of a pickup rate as we were compared to email clicks. And I think one of the reasons for that is we realized that a lot of our customers have desk lines and most of them have been working from home for the past year, year and a half. And we haven't had any other way to reach them besides email or besides LinkedIn. So it's been interesting to see just sort of like different 
mechanisms and methods that have evolved over the course of the pandemics. And I think there's been ebbs and flows depending on the level of lockdown in any given country at any given time. Speaking of ebbs and flows, it sounds to me like one of those challenges right there is a data challenge of reaching people potentially on mobile numbers as opposed to desk or direct phones. Is that a direction that you've looked into? It is. Yeah, we we have. And in fact, I think like sales loft has been a really helpful way for us to look at some of those things. You can see exactly how many people are responding from email versus LinkedIn versus phone calls. And that's where we actually saw some of those insights. And we had heard some of them anecdotally. People from my team were saying, nobody's answering my phone calls in a way that I, I didn't experience a month ago. And then when we validated it with the data, it was actually like, wow, that's that's true. Customers aren't answering the phone. And we realized the reason that it was, it was because of the desk line situation that I had mentioned. And so because of that, since we saw that LinkedIn had really increased in maybe Middle East Africa or in APAC, we saw that email worked better. We were able to kind of create different types of customized sales plays and cadences accordingly on things that were actually working and pivoting along the way. How do you feel or how does IBM feel or both about the blending of personal and business communications? And what I mean is now a lot more businesses are at least considering the use of text message, of personal social like Facebook and Instagram and things like that. Other people are posting on LinkedIn every other day about how horrible that idea is. So it's a it's a hot debate in the topic. What, what's your position on, on those types of more personal outbound? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, I think it's always good to test and try different approaches. I strongly believe in the power of social selling. LinkedIn We've gotten really creative. We have a lot of our sales development reps kind of creating their own work from home videos or they're just doing some fun stuff where they're selling or pitching an IBM solution, but they enlist their child or their dog or whatever it might be to make it a little bit fun. And it's obviously not an official IBM LinkedIn post. It's just something that they're doing. But a lot of those things are getting really, really great hits and a lot of great engagement. So I'm all for testing and trying and sort of breaking the barriers between work and personal and and all of those types of things. I personally have not really seen that be as successful on an Instagram or a Facebook at this stage yet. We have seen a lot of success in doing some of those fun things on LinkedIn, but we haven't seen it as much on, on other social channels. And it might also be because of the IBM clientele. So every everybody needs to think about it a little bit differently. But for the most part, I mean, we are obviously a B2B company. And we're selling to businesses, big or small, and some of them might not be looking at Instagram or the IBM Instagram page in the way that they would on LinkedIn. One more question that's been coming up a lot recently, and you mentioned that you guys are doing work overseas in the EU. There's the the ultimate four-letter word in sales these days, especially in Europe, which is GDPR. How are you tackling not only GDPR, but there's all of the associated laws and regulations and now local regulations in each country? Is that Has that been a major obstacle for what you're doing at IBM, or have you felt pretty confident getting through that? It's been an obstacle for sure, but we do have a lot of data privacy teams whose entire job is looking at this every single day. I and mean, we never, ever want to violate any sort of thing that could get us in any trouble. And so I think, you know, honestly, I'm not the best person to speak to that. We typically just sort of look to those people to provide us with the right guidance and we build the right cadences and outreach accordingly. Maybe that's the lesson for our audience, though, in and of itself, which is have an expert. 
have somebody exactly. that really knows this stuff. If you're going to work in those markets, make sure you don't get yourself in trouble and don't think that reading an article article or two online is going to do it. Even you know the best and brightest, the the leaders at companies like IBM, even they lean on their experts to get this done. For sure. I'm really curious in a position of leadership as you are. It seems to me, reading your background, that that you're super passionate about you know creating more diverse workplaces, being more inclusive. How have you gone about the business of, you know, essentially creating that reality that we want to see in the world there at IBM? Great question. I would say, you know, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, probably my favorite topic to always talk about. But I really, you know, as I mentioned, my passion for just sort of building and scaling high performing sales teams I don't think you can do that unless you have a really strong set of diverse sellers. And so I, in particular, I mean, I'm really passionate about getting more women into sales. It's an area that I've written articles about on Forbes. I've spoken at conferences. I've led workshops. So I'm really committed to attracting, retaining, and advancing women, but also all marginalized groups. And I think the reason is because we want to mirror our customer base. You know, I think Nowadays, you you might have a CEO who's the business decision maker who is 25-year-old woman. And now you have to find ways to be able to engage with those people, with your content, with your sellers, with the type of outreach that you're doing. And so I think it's just so important to really think about all of those things and to develop strategies and hold yourself accountable. So like I said, I mean, I've, I've written an article on why we need more women in sales. I've written one on why women should consider roles in sales and have done similar things for other types of groups. But the most important thing is setting yourself a strategy, just like any other business goal that you would have with KPIs and metrics and get to green plans and really think about what does your current population look like and what are the strategies that you can take to bring more people in and most importantly, to advance them once they get there, because there's no point putting so much effort into getting people in the door if you're not going to foster an environment where they can thrive and succeed. And that requires a lot of different things. It requires different types of retention things, different types of contests, different types of incentives. It's the little things that I think make a big difference. And I'll give you a quick example. If you have a contest, a sales contest, if you have the prize be tickets to a baseball game, that might not be attractive to a woman, for example. They might just want a cash award and similarly for a man. And so we just have to sort of get really thoughtful about what, what is inclusion within a sales force and how do you foster an environment that is inclusive. You know, as a follow-up there, I've worked with so many women who have been in, in particular scared about the enterprise space. They, you know, it's an old boys club, everybody wears blue suits with white white shirts and red ties and all that lovely stuff. What would you say to women in sales, women in sales development who are just starting or thinking about getting into that space and looking at companies like, you know, IBM, Microsoft group, real enterprise groups and thinking maybe that's a tougher space for women. Uh, It sounds like you're saying that's starting to change finally, no, no too soon or none too soon rather. But what would you say to those types of women? Because, you know, we agree we, we need more women in the space as well. You know, what's changed and, and how is it now uh, how is it now doable for them? Well, I think unfortunately a lot of women have a lot of preconceived notions about the profession being very masculine, very competitive. They'll think they might not have the right personality for it. And 
as anyone who has probably heard my story, I fell in that camp and that's why I'm so passionate about this. It was actually when I had applied for Microsoft, it was the recruiter who put me in this queue for sales, even though I had applied for a marketing position. And I'm so, so grateful that she had helped sort of put that light bulb in my head because it is a profession I would have never naturally considered. And so nowadays, my, my advice to women is to throw out whatever preconceived notions you might have about the profession. And I think there's a few reasons why. First of all, sales is a place where you can develop very, very tangible skills around confidence and grit and perseverance. I mean, you'll develop some of those softer skills, but also hard skills like how to position and influence and negotiate effectively. And all of those things are really transferable and and they set you up to do almost anything. I think marketing, business development, corporate teams, all of those are looking for people with a sales background because as a seller, you understand what a customer wants. And that's really invaluable for building programs or offerings that are relevant. And the other things, you know, that I think are great about sales is you you will make good money realistically while having a pretty flexible lifestyle. I mean, sales can be very attractive, lucrative, um, doesn't always require an advanced degree. In fact, Flex Jobs, actually, they published a list of the 10 best family-friendly careers based on high earnings and expected job growth. And at the top of the list was account managers. And I think, you know, especially with the influx of technology, it's made it easier for sellers to connect with customers remotely. So it allows for more flexibility. And then the final thing I would say to women is that you know studies show that women are actually really good at sales. In fact, exactly reported that women are better than men at sales. They outperform them by about 3%. And I don't think that's surprising because women have a lot of characteristics that make them a good fit for sales, like the ability to build relationships and trust and we develop and demonstrate empathy and understanding. So, so yeah, I would say, you know, that's my pitch for sales. Um, hopefully I have convinced one or more people who are listening that, you know, we need more women in sales. We've got to take strategies to get more women into sales and always happy to engage with anybody on this topic. If, if anyone wants to reach out or needs any advice on how to do this. You know, what a perfect segue. We'd love for you to give our listeners the ability to do exactly that. Where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they engage with you? The best place to find me is on LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out there. You could also follow me on Twitter. And as I mentioned, I also write articles periodically for Forbes. So I have the Forbes Business Development Council page where you can see some of those. But really look forward to engaging with this audience and and appreciate it being here today. Yeah, I really want to recommend to the audience that you do reach out to Rocky, obviously also for the the women in sales looking to get into teams like this. I'm sure you can find Rocky. Groups like that are are always growing as well, have connections and networks with lots of other groups as well. So check her out on LinkedIn, check out her websites. But if you check out her background, as you heard about in the intro, uh, Rocky's been kind of a, a shooting star in the space. So a lot to learn from her. Last thing we'll ask, is there anything about IBM that you'd like to, to mention to our audience in particular? No, just, you know, buy some IBM solutions. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you'd like to do that, you know where to find her. And uh, I'm sure Rocky's more than open to the conversation. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us, Rocky. It's been an absolute pleasure. Congratulations on all the recent success, uh, not only throughout your career, but you know, recent promotion as well. Thank you for everything you're doing for the space, for women in sales and sales development, and uh, of course, for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me.